0: My name is Jeff. If we haven't met and excited, I'm excited. We're starting a new series. If you're visiting Crossview in person or online, today's a good Sunday to be joining us. Um, We're going to be doing a series uh, called The Table, and we're going to, I mean, for many weeks now, we're going to just look at what Jesus is doing in, like, telling us to practice communion regularly and and what are kind of the benefits? What's supposed to be happening to us as a church family as we celebrate communion regularly? Uh, and so I thought I'd start. Uh, I have a book. I have a lot of books if you go into my office. One of the books I have is The Meal Jesus Gave Us, Understanding Holy Communion by Tom Wright. And he starts with this kind of like funny analogy or illustration or metaphor. So you kind of have to access your inner child when you grew up, whatever your age was. There was some movie where a kid had a best friend that was an alien, right? So whether it's E.T. or something much newer, you just imagine, you know, you're a kid and you have a, a friend that's an alien, and the alien shows up for a birthday party, a little girl's birthday party. That's what, right, just trying to get us to be thinking about these things that we do have meaning. So what's the meaning behind it? So the alien's following you around for whatever reason. In your mind, you have a million reasons why you're the most approachable and best one for the alien to hang out with. So he or she, this alien, has chosen you and begins asking these questions. Why are all these people here? Why do they pull those things that make a bang? Why are they wearing funny hats? Why does the little girl in the middle of it all keep opening boxes? And why, oh, why is someone trying to set fire to the cake? Every time you try to answer this alien, it seems to make, the alien more puzzled. You say it's her birthday. You mean she was just born? No, no, no. She was born 10 years ago. Well, what's so special about that? Well, we always do this each year. Well, what's a year? You know, it's this 365 days. Oh, it doesn't work like that in my planet. But why are they giving her things? It's her birthday. Why do you give people things on their birthday? We, well, we always do. It, it's to tell them they're special. Well, isn't everyone special? You know, he just goes on this. But why Why do Why do we do what we do at a birthday party why do we do what we do at communion? I, I, sometimes I'm afraid we, me, myself, all of us, we don't access all that God has for us. So over the next, actually, several weeks, we uh, leading into Advent, we are going to be answering questions like, why a meal? Why this meal? What is the meaning? Why did Jesus tell us to do this over and over again? And I I don't have a specific agenda for our church family other than to go deeper into this experience and encounter that Christ has instructed us to do. But it's possible that it will even influence us as a church, you know, as we talk about this. Maybe you'll have ideas. Oh, maybe we should do this or do this or we should do communion more frequently. We we will be during the series, at least. We will end every sermon with communion during the series. So be prepared for that. It'll be every week. Now, I chose... uh, And you'll see why as we get there, it might not be the first passage you would have chosen. We'll talk about the Last Supper next week. But I chose this week to start with a resurrection story, the resurrected Jesus, Luke chapter 24. It's an incredible story in the Bible. I've preached it once before. In fact, I went back and I gathered notes from a previous sermon, and then I did more work. And I had, I'm not kidding, I had 40 pages of notes Friday morning. That I have to get down to five pages on Sunday. So that was. So I could probably preach like five. There's so much going on in this text. I could probably preach like five different uh, sermons from this. But you'll see, we're going to hone in on how this connects to communion and what do we learn. So Luke chapter 24, verse verse 13, it's the first Easter Sunday. That's where we're at. That same day, two of Jesus' followers, and you can picture a man and a woman. I'll explain who I think these people are in a few minutes. Two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem, probably about about two hours, right? Seven miles. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Remember, it's the first Easter Sunday. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. And if you've read, if you haven't, I encourage you to read them. But if you haven't read the end of the gospel accounts in Matthew, Luke, and John, you will see that this is pretty common. God kept them from recognizing him. It's it's often that there's something familiar about the resurrected Jesus and something distinct. And people don't always recognize him immediately in these stories for all kinds of reasons. Again, a sermon for another day. And he asked them, what are you discussing, discussing so intently as you walk these seven miles to Emmaus? And they stop short. I love the sadness written across their face. Who are you? Where have you been? We'll get into more about where the sadness is coming from. But but you even have the sense, I'm going to tell you, I think this is a husband and a wife. And they're trying to, I don't know if you're a verbal processor or not, but sometimes you just got to get it out. You got to talk about this. They're carrying disappointment. Their hearts have been crushed. Somebody they love actually someone i think they've known since childhood <laughs> has just been brutally crucified and so many of their hopes for the future are wrapped up with this individual and they're, they're, they're crushed, and, and they're having their, like, it's, it's a safe place for them to talk about what they're feeling and experiencing, and now this stranger comes. Have you ever had this moment where you're having a, a vulnerable conversation in the kitchen at a holiday party, and somebody who you don't know as well just inserts themselves? That, it's often me, actually. I do that all the time. Just inserts themselves in these vulnerable moments, and you're like, no, I don't, I don't trust, I don't know you well enough to just to just invite you in. I got to recalibrate it, they're just kind of surprised. Well, what is going on? And then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all these things, the things that have happened here in the last few days. Okay, just a word. Just, we'll go quick on this. We could spend more time. But who is Cleopas? Well, we could go down a whole trail. Uh, we'd bring in John chapter 19 and some other things and some church history. But I'm just going to tell you, I feel pretty, we don't know this for sure, but I feel pretty good from what I read in the Bible and from church history. I think Cleopas is married to a woman named Mary, mentioned in John chapter 19. And Cleopas is a pretty rare name, actually. We have really good reason to believe that Cleopas is the brother of a guy named Joseph, who you probably met in the Christmas stories of Mary and Joseph. <laughs> So there's a really good chance that this is Cleopas, the brother of Joseph. So it's like, to Jesus, Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary. Now, why is Cleopas mentioned? Well, a lot of times in the Gospels, and you see this in the Gospel of Mark in particular, when somebody is kind of just thrown into the narrative, like, why is that person named? It's often somebody from the community. Somebody that we oh we know that person oh they visit oh they're they're one of us we know that person and they're in the story this is so cool or they they came and they preached here you know we it's somebody you would know well I think here for Luke one of the things Luke is really careful about is he wants his audience to know where he got his information because Luke wasn't there and so I think he mentions Cleopas it's his way of saying I got this story from Cleopas he's still around if you want to ask him you can find him. <laughs> You don't go to a library and read and do a book. You go find Cleopas. And you, uh, this is what Luke said is, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the one who told him that. I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> so it's Luke's way of kind of citing his source, if you will. So Jesus is walking along with Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary. And, and, and he says, what things? What th- and this is hilarious. They say the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. So it's just kind of ironic, right? They're telling Jesus about Jesus. And, you know, he's kind of like chuckling as he, as he walks along. God has a sense of humor. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. We, we, we were his aunt and uncle, and we, we followed him here. But, oh, if you, could, if, you, if you would have seen our leading priests and other religious leaders, they handed him over to be condemned to death. I bet Mary's weeping as this is said. Crucified him. I saw his body beaten. It's horrible. And we had hoped here you get a sense of some of the sadness that they're carrying. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. And we got a lot of problems here in Israel. And we thought this was the guy who was going to solve our problems. And make things right again. And it's really fresh. Stranger, this is really fresh in our hearts. It happened. is all in the last three days. And then to top it off this morning, some of the women who are in our community of following Jesus, they go to the tomb and they come back with this amazing report. They said the body's missing Which is horrifying. Who would take his body? But then they said angels were there and they said, Jesus is alive. I don't know what to do with this information. But this is what we have. Some other men ran there to see. Sure enough, body's gone, just as the women said. And Jesus says to them, you foolish people. I'm going to tell you what I think he means by calling them foolish people in this moment. He says, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering the glory? In other words, Jesus is like you're carrying around a lot of sadness and disappointment. And you don't have to. (laughs) You don't have to. Because God's story has always said it would play out. And, and right now, you're operating with sadness and disappointment, but you could have joy. You could be. In fact, for thousands of years, people are going to talk about this moment right now. And you're living some of the best part of the whole story. You're disappointed for no reason. Why are you disappointed? You're foolish for losing hope. When the scriptures have always said it would be this way. And maybe there's something, I mean, and again, probably not for all of you this morning, but maybe a few of you this morning, Jesus in a very loving and gentle but profound way is saying to you, don't be a fool. You are carrying sadness and disappointment and stress and anxiety. You don't have to. I tried to tell you it was going to be hard. <laughs> Jesus says, right? Like you, you, the, the Bible's laid out a story for you and until I come again, we're still going to live in bro- you're, but but you don't have to give up all your hope. There's still a lot of hope. Maybe Jesus is speaking to you this morning. Well, verse 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I like to say here. I've said this before. I had a great experience in seminary. I went to our denominational seminary. I'm grateful for it. I would trade my whole seminary experience for this conversation. And I will tell you, I've I've talked freely about this here across you, but really about eight, nine years ago, I don't know exactly, but Jesus kind of, he woke me up to a degree and he altered my journey a little bit. He enlivened me. And we'll talk about how he enlivens us. He enlivened me. And I like to talk about going on this Jesus journey. And honestly, verse 27 represents for me kind of a huge summary of what I mean when I talk about this Jesus journey I went on. Just learning to see Jesus everywhere. Paul in Ephesians says he The ascended Christ fills all things everywhere with himself. So I'm learning how to see Jesus in my life, in your life, all around us, and even more clearly in the biblical story, which is what we'll be doing. Uh, If you want to join us, I think we're going to have a pretty large group of people, some brand new people, some people who've been here for a long time. I really invite you. What we're going to do, informed by story, for 10 weeks we're going to look at just one of the themes that runs through the biblical story and gets us to Jesus. There's a lot. I mean, if you just think, if you read through the New Testament, even just with the sacrificial system, Jesus is the true high priest who offers the sacrifice. He is the lamb being slaughtered on the altar. He's also the altar itself, and he's the temple that's the, the environment. For Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the biblical story. And part of being a disciple of Jesus and being responsible and knowing the good story is knowing how to read the story that God gives us and see how all of it runs through Jesus. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, come join us wherever you're at on your journey. We're going to read the Bible looking for Jesus and see how it all gets to him. I'm excited about doing that. Keep reading verse 28. By this time they were nearing Emmaus, the end of their seven-mile journey, and Jesus acted as if he were going to go on, but they, th- he had warmed up on them, or they're just very hospitable, one of the two, and they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. Verse 30, this is where we're going to turn our attention to why would we do this to start a communion sermon series. As they sat down, Jesus is the guest, but he's going to step into the role of the host. It's really cool. And so he is going to, and Luke is very intentional. This is, if you will, sacramental language. <laughs> he's referencing, again, we'll talk about the Last Supper next week, but he's referencing that story. So Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it. And what we'll, what we'll hone in on specifically this morning is he gave it. He gave it to them. And notice verse 31. It's a pretty remarkable verse. In that moment, their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And again, this is a resurrected body. We learn about our new creation bodies through, primarily through the resurrection appearances of Jesus. And it just vanishes. As we'll talk about this morning, we confess more than we can explain. But this is what the biblical story tells us. But as I even enter into this part of the story, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that it played out like this, but I can imagine. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He begins to break it. He hands it to them, one hand handing, the other hand still holding the loaf. They take the bread, and as soon as their eyes are open, they recognize him. He vanishes, and that loaf he was holding just thuds on the table. And again, it's just a profound way of Jesus saying, and you and I are going to have to move towards this as we embark on this journey of understanding what is going on in communion. It's it's as if Jesus is saying without words, if you want to continue to meet with me, eat the bread. This is where you meet with me. (laughs) That's a profound statement from the resurrected Jesus. Verse 32, they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn? Something was going on inside of us when he, when he talked to us on the road, when he was explaining. We knew it was true what he was saying about the Bible. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. Well, we got to go back. And they found the 11 there, and they, they said, the Lord's risen. Peter's seen him. In other words, again, and this is a beautiful part of the Jesus story, our experience of, the, of encountering the risen Jesus isn't just limited to us, other people, I mean, that's why we have a room full of people. Other people have encountered the same risen Lord all around the world. (laughs) It's pretty cool. And then verse 35, and this will, last part we'll read, and then we'll kind of dig a little deeper into this. Verse 35 kind of sets us up. The two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how, listen to this, how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. Again, very, if you will, sacramental, communion-oriented language. So the first question I want to begin to address, and I'm going to go a funny route. I'm going to kind of take a philosophical detour, if you'll go with me. I think you'll be able to follow. But I want to address this morning, why a meal? Why does Jesus pick a meal to be this significant, repeated action by his followers? So let me go on a little detour here. One aspect of the classical Christian view of God is that God has eternal existence. He has always been. If you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, which I pray daily, We would say God's the creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. That's what we believe about God. To talk about God as an eternal being is not just to say God is outside of time. It's saying that God is being itself that is not bound by the confines of time and space dimensions. You could say that God is the eternal present. I like to say the eternal now. Really, that's what God reveals through this name we know that begins with Moses at the burning bush. God says, I am. I am who I am. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. I am who I am. I am who will be. I am. I am. The biblical story is trying to articulate through its narrative that all reality as you and I experience it is contingent and conditional and flows out of the I am. So, just so you don't get bogged down by philosophy, imagine my son Jay, as many children probably do, coming to his dad and saying, Dad, where did I come from? And I would say, your mom and I. Well, where did you come from? Well, I came from Grandma and Grandpa Knitt, and Mom came from uh, Grandma and Grandpa Ellison. Well, where did they come from, right? And you just just keep going all the way back. Well, where did this whole thing start, Dad? Where did it all come from? Where did the stuff we came from come from? Something whose existence is conditional cannot generate its own existence. And this is one of the most classical and often misunderstood arguments for theism, a belief in God, right? A conditional reality cannot be the condition of its own existence. And this is fundamental to the biblical story's view of reality. That reality as you and I know it must generate from some unconditioned source. Maybe you've heard the phrase an uncaused cause. That's what you might say in Aristotelian language. (laughs) But the Bible doesn't say an uncaused cause. The Bible says Yahweh. The Bible says, I am (laughs) the eternal present. In other words, all that you and I experience is conditional reality whose existence depends on something way up the chain. So therefore, its existence and its life and its power to regenerate or multiply all must come from a source. That's what the story of Genesis is depicting in its own way through the seven-day creation story in Genesis chapter 1, and then the Garden of Eden story in Genesis chapter 2. The Garden of Eden is portrayed as a garden that is itself the source of a river that flows into the rest of the world. The river represents that this is the source of life for the whole world. And, of course, if you know the story of the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, and this is where we're getting to with a meal, at the center of the garden is this tree of life. The biblical authors are communicating, they're trying to give us language and categories for understanding that out of this one source comes all of life and creation. And raises the question, what if the source of all life could give us the gift of participation in that eternal, unconditional life? A gift given to conditional creatures. Participation in God's own eternal life as a meal. The fruit of the tree of life. If Adam and Eve hadn't been banished from the garden, they could have eaten forever from the tree of life. So there's something real that transcends creation. And in the biblical story, that's called the eternal I Am, Yahweh. What then gets fascinating, if you pay attention to the Gospels, and you're you're paying attention to our New Testament authors who are writing about Jesus, what happens is Jesus then begins to claim that identity for himself. Jesus actually begins to say, You know Yahweh, the I Am? (laughs) the source of all life, I am. That's me, Jesus says. In fact, some of my favorite passages to read, which I didn't notice the first time I read through the Bible, it took a few few tours through, but it's when Paul or some of these other New Testament authors will quote from the Old Testament and have zero problem replacing the name Yahweh, I am, the eternal now, with the name Jesus. In other words, Jesus is claiming for himself this identity. And guess what? People believed him. <laughs> and they began worshiping him. Let me say this, just as we talk about learning to read the Bible, looking for Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh, the source of life that we're introduced to. We, we get to learn who the source is, what he's like, and how to, if you will, ingest his life eat of his life. And then the New Testament tells us that this human being, Jesus of Nazareth, has entered into our human story and he is Yahweh, the source of all life. And I'll just tell you, as somebody who's been around lots of Bible teaching, you can learn to read the Bible in very boring ways. But you don't have to! You can learn to read the Bible as an invitation to meet the source of all life. Because that's what it's an invitation to. (laughs) What we learn at the very beginning of this story is that God has a desire to share his own divine existence with others. And then to sustain their existence through his own unending, inexhaustible source of life and being. And in order to do that, God takes something that doesn't have the ability to be eternal in and of itself, right? We're conditional. If you know the beginning of the story, we are dust. And God then breathes his life into us. But then we still need to eat of the tree of life, right? God wants to give this gift of life. And the gift is first seen as a meal at the tree of life. But as the story moves forward, it is ultimately and finally seen in Jesus Christ, who we could easily say is the truest tree of life. If you can let me do bad grammar, the ultimate tree of life. And it's why then, it's why then, if you've ever read through the Gospel of John, it's why you come across passages like this that mess with your head a little bit. But, 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 but hear this in light of the narrative I just explained to you. If God is the source of all life and we need him as our source and we need to find ways to ingest his eternal life into us, how do we do it? Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But, and I hope you hear this as good news, Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. Jesus says, my flesh is true food. It's the the fruit of the tree of life. And my blood is true drink. And anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. Again, we confess more than we can explain, but this is what Jesus says. Somehow as we partake of this meal... We are in him, and look at what he says, and I in him or her. In other words, what do we need? We need to access the source of all life. And Jesus says, as you feast on this meal, I am in you. My life is in you. That should feel pretty profound. (laughs) Jesus says, I live because of the living Father who sent me. And in the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. It's profound. It's, it's a little crazy. But I want to say, too, because we're talking about reading the Bible, I think it's interesting to me that Jesus gives us this gift of a meal. And I think it's very much meant to be this eating of his flesh and blood, the the language he's using, an encounter of the risen Christ. And I want to remind us, I think we know this, but it's, it's easy to forget this. Growing in Christ is not just learning about Jesus. Right, in the same way that you and I could say, I don't like my fitness, I want to get healthy. So I am going to read a lot about exercise and diet. So what? Until you actually begin to exercise and diet, all of your learning will do you no good. Same thing with Jesus. Unfortunately, and we all know this from our own experience and just being in the church, you can learn a lot about Jesus without actually encountering him. But guess what, church? (laughs) Today we're going to celebrate communion. You know what Jesus says? You can meet him in the bread and in the wine. So if you haven't encountered Jesus, (laughs) if you're not sure you have, you get a chance today. A chance to meet the living Christ. Christianity is an encounter with the risen Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, even if we're doing this form by story, gaining knowledge is important because, because we live in modern-day Babylon and we are confronted with a story that is false all the time. And so gaining knowledge actually is important because it reframes so that we don't have to walk around with sadness and disappointment because the story's good because God is moving. And so gaining knowledge is important, but we don't stop there. You don't have to be brilliant. You just have to meet with the risen Jesus. (laughs) And he wants to meet with you. He's inviting you to his table. (laughs) He wants to set you free. Now, a little bit more here. Because we talk about eternal life, and here's the thing. When you feast on the life of Jesus it is eternal. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. But I always get worried as a pastor, just in my experience in Christian circles, that, that maybe it's possible to approach communion with some kind of like savings account mentality. Well, I, it, life is eternal, so it doesn't really kick in until I die. So every installment of communion I have before I die, maybe I'm just saving up eternal life so that when I die, it's all there in my retirement fund. Kind of a salvational version of some kind of beautiful 401k. You can't access it or you won't get the full benefits. You got to wait until you die. It's not at all what the New Testament authors say. Here's the thing. As you and I approach the table in just a few minutes, we are tasting of Jesus' life here and now. So what I want to do, if you'll let me, I'm going to read just a part of a sermon from uh, one of my favorite theologians who has helped me see Jesus in the Bible everywhere, Richard Bauckham. And I thought it was kind of cool because I think a bunch of you are in BSF because you're studying your Bibles. Good job. <laughs> and you're in the Gospel of John. So maybe even this week you're doing the, the wedding at Cana. Is that right? Anybody? Am I right on that? Pretty soon. It's coming up soon. But he was preaching a sermon on the wedding at Cana, and he, and he talks about this enlivened life. And so let me just read what he says. I just like the way he says it. He says, This is why the miracle of the wine at Cana is the first of Jesus' miracles. It It declares the messianic age has come. Jesus is introducing into the ordinary life of people like those at the wedding feast that messianic enhancement of life that the prophets predicted. The luxury of the miracle, the extravagant abundance of remarkably good wine, is the whole point. This is God's extravagantly generous provision for human salvation. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Not mere life, life in its minimal sense, but abundant life, life in its maximal sense. Life enlivened, life enhanced, life intensified, life invigorated. That's the salvation that Jesus Christ brings. Of course, it is also life healed, life redeemed, and life restored. Salvation is putting wrongs right, healing hurts, and restoring what is lost. But it is more than that. Salvation also makes what is already good so much better. Certainly, Jesus shared our griefs in order to assuage them. He felt our pains in order to heal them. He bore our sins in order to deliver us from them. But he also shared our joys in order to enhance them. He shared our life in order to raise it to the nth degree of aliveness. You don't wait till you die for that. It can begin right now. He said, I think we need to recover this sense of salvation, not only as healing, immensely important as that is, but also as the enlivening, the enhancement of life. But, again, you and I are scripted by modern-day Babylon. Here's the Jesus but. But we need to understand it rightly. I do not mean that people who are living rather privileged lives, as most of us are, simply do even better out of life. This is not some kind of prosperity gospel. One of the things that enhanced life, the life Jesus gives, means is that we live life with greater awareness of other lives, in greater openness to all life. In other words, every time you get stuck in this narrative of what's good for me, or I've got to take care of me, or I've got to look out for me, that is not the enlivened life, that is a diminished, reduced version of life. What Jesus is doing, he's the source of all life, he is the definition of life, he is life itself. And what he's telling us is that you and I are a part of something much bigger And that as we awaken to this Jesus life, as we participate in communion, one of the things that should happen is we should not be so focused on me, but look around the room, imagine our neighborhoods, and at some point think all of these animated beings around me are also sustained by the one and only source of all life. The source of all life is also giving them life. And inviting them into a more meaningful, richer, deeper, enlivened life. What's my role in serving them into this, right? (laughs) Baucom goes on to say, and this is why I thought it was fitting, the life Jesus gives is the life Jesus lived. Painfully open to the needs and the hurts of others, as well as also joyously open to the joys of others. To live more fully is to love all life, to care for all living beings against all threats to life, against poverty or sickness or enmity or death. To live life more fully even means being able to to take on these threats, sometimes to suffer them, even to accept death as Jesus did. Fullness of life is the resource from which we can live for others and give ourselves for others. Essentially, it is life lived out of the source of life which is God. All life comes from God. All life is God's gift. But new life, enlivened life, eternal life, salvation, whatever you want to call it this morning, is life reconnected, permanently connected, intimately connected with the divine source from which it therefore springs up continually like a fountain of water. This is life with, and you tell me if you want this. This is life with meaning. This is life with depth. I mean, how many days do you feel like I just skimmed across the surface today? This is life with intensity. Life with sensitivity. Not simply in itself, but in that it lives continuously out of God. It is life enlivened with the life of God. So the little miracle, water turned into wine, points to the big miracle, life resourced from its divine source. The little miracle, I said, is possible because God's creation is not closed off from its creator. It's open to God's influence and activity within it. Your life is open to God's influence and activity within it. And even more, the big miracle, salvation, means that God's creation is not closed off from its creator. Its life can be reconnected with its divine source. It can begin to live out of God. It can begin to become the new creation when there will be no more death because all creation will be alive with God's life. (laughs) For you will encounter God in every blade of grass. It's all sustained by his life. So now, if you're tracking with me, (laughs) Jesus presents us with a new choice between life or death. A new tree of life stands before each one of us. We can eat and drink from it, but it will mean humbly passing through death like Jesus, allowing our old fighting and protecting way of being human to die, But then it will also then mean resurrection, taking hold of true life, a life that is defined by faithful love towards all that is sustained by the life of God. So as we kind of move forward, what I want to do, I'm going to throw up a painting here. I believe what I'm trying to say is this meal that we're about to participate in is an invitation into capital L-I-F-E life. Now, in 1602, I'm not even going to, Caravaggio? Is that good? I don't know. I'm not Italian. But, I mean, you think about this. 400 years ago, somebody was worshiping Christ and drawing art of him. (laughs) I mean, we are a part of this big story. And he painted a meal, uh, painted a painting called The Meal at Emmaus. And so, typically at this time, if you've ever paid attention to art, Jesus is painted with a beard. He's doesn't he's in the middle, right? He doesn't have a beard, probably because he wasn't recognizable to them. But sometimes, I mean, some of you know I was a chemical engineer by trade, so uh, art and that kind of stuff doesn't come naturally to me. Poetry I've had to work at. So profound, though. I mean, so much of our faith we confess more than we can explain. We have to be able to embrace mystery, and so I like to lean into art where I can. And so I've just done a little bit of. But I need people to help me sometimes. But I've done a little bit of work, right? There's, you see, if you, if you were like sitting before this painting in the gallery, there's a space for you. I mean, look, even the way the hands are drawn, the, the, the guy on our left is about to get up. He's shocked by, he's realizing this is Jesus. He's about to get, it's almost like there's going to be a seat open for you. Or maybe before that you can see the fruit. It's like halfway off the table. You, you want to like lean in and catch it. And then all of a sudden you're at the table with Jesus. The painting is inviting you in. You just let the artist look, look at that. Let Jesus invite you in. Don't be a passive observer. Don't just learn about Jesus. Meet with him. Meet with him this morning. In a second, we're going to pass out uh, the bread and the juice. And just, just prayerfully, how do you do that? Just, you'll learn as you go. But just prayerfully this morning, just, okay, Jesus, you're here. What do I want to tell you? Maybe there's some sin I want to confess. Maybe there's some joy I want to celebrate with you. Maybe there's something I just need to tell you. Or maybe, just maybe, I just know you're here and you see me. I just needed to be, you see me. I feel like nobody knows me, but I I get a sense, you know me. I'm not alone. Maybe I belong with this group of people because we're all running after Jesus together. Just let Jesus meet you. Let him invite you to the table. All right, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll kind of move forward and we'll encounter Jesus in the bread and in the cup. If you want to bow your, bow your heads, this is a prayer of St. Ignatius. Again, we're just re- reaching back into church history here. But just pray in your hearts with me. God, take and receive all my liberty, receive my memory, receive my understanding, receive my entire will, because all that I have and call my own is what you have given to me. So to you, God, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you desire. Give me only your love and your generous grace. And that will be enough for me. That will be life for me. Amen.